0: thanks Christy for that underwhelming introduction
1: <laughs>
0: I was expecting some glowing compliments you know, what a spiritually grounded intelligent worthy erudite and all that and then I would have humbled myself saying I'm embarrassed by the compliments
1: <laughs>
0: because you haven't said enough I said teasing if I said that David there you go count them one two Good morning, my name is Ajit. Hi, Got a Mensa crowd, you can actually pronounce a foreign name so easily, thank you. They say if you had to be a higher intelligence to be able to say foreign names. And by Dick's standards, my God is still asleep because I'm on California time, it's not way to. Thank you again for asking me to come out, thank you Christiane for uh, asking me to come out here and speak and it's cold Chicago weather but I'm not resentful because we're experiencing the same thing in Southern California it's in the 30s tonight I guess so it's all right and I want to welcome all my friends in Al-Anon hello
1: <laughs>
0: any members of Alcoholics Anonymous in here I welcome you too
1: <laughs> why do we wag
0: a finger at al- alcoholics I have no idea you know, if we had a sense of humor, we'd move the furniture around or change, the, you know, move the address to another house. But <laughs> well, we are so anal, Pfft, drinking again. I had a comedian say, he says, alcoholism is the only disease where we get ticked off at the diseased person. We don't go up to a cancer patient and say, I thought you were in remission, for God's sake. I
1: <laughs>
0: Any double winners here? And I welcome you too. You must be a schizophrenic personality, I tell you. You're too self-obsessed. Focus on yourself. It must be terrible. See two people in the rooms at the same time, you know. Thank you for the lovely basket. I didn't know how you got that aged cognac in there and the great cigars. No, I'm... For the al Nazis, I'm only teasing. Was chips and candy. Got a sugar high happening here. I, tell you, I I like to. I really loved the speakers that I heard. I missed Benoit but uh, I've been promised a CD, so that's good. But last night, Peg, oh my goodness, uh, what a wonderful way to tell a story. Had me gripped all the time. She didn't talk to tell a story about the wolf. I think you had in your stories in the past, fox or a wolf. Fox, same family, isn't it? Canine. <laughs> And then Frank, what a testimony to, to AA. I was sitting next to Linda and we were both kind of saying, oh my God, how did this guy make it? <laughs> and that just shows you the power of the program. I mean, it's amazing. It can take someone like this guy. I mean, I would have been scared to walk you know, around him in those days. Guy's shooting his own, himself between the legs, missing his child. That's insane. And how? Wh- where do we come from? You know, I don't like to refer to the alcoholic in my life as my as my qualifier because my qualifier actually rests between my ears. She happened to be the usher.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so I'm truly grateful for the alcoholic in my life because if it hadn't been for the alcoholic in my life, uh, I would not have found this wonderful program. Listening to Dick Martin this morning. Uh, I like that Dick Martin. Where's his... Uh, cohort, the other guy. You know, comedian, wasn't it? Dick Martin and the other one? Well, Rye's sense of humor, very quiet, very simple talk in terms of, it's, it's really a very simple program. And that brings me to this point. I hate to tell you, when I came into Alanon it was circa 1980. I don't recall exactly what month or when, because I wasn't focused on myself.
1: <laughs>
0: but I can remember to the day when she walked into AA. May 25, 1983, 802 p.m. <laughs> But my program, and it was at the University United Methodist Church on the corner of Culver and Jeffrey. And,
1: <laughs> but I, you
0: know, and, and my program really took hold of me in 1997. Seventeen years later, why? Because I complicated the bloody thing. I had it stuck in my head. You know, I thought it was it was at least 99 inches. We meant exaggerate. I know it's only about eight or ten inches. <laughs> was stuck in there. I thought if I read something, I understood it. If I understood it, therefore I experienced it, if I experienced it, I did not have to work it. If I projected the right image, making you think that I had worked it because I could articulate the damn thing, I could philosophize on the steps, I could tell you back and forth where Bill W. should have changed a few things around to make it more intellectually pal- you know, palatable. And so it stayed in there. And the ego had me believe that I had actually walked the talk when I hadn't. And in 1997, after a couple of things that happened, and I will tell you that in my story, a divorce followed by a, 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 very, a breakup of what I thought was a significant relationship, is when, when I thought my feet finally hit the ground. For, for the longest time, I thought my feet were firmly planted in mid-air. And then, boom, I felt a thud. And so i like what Dick had to say this morning. It's a very simple program. For me, it was like a birthing of sorts. But this time I wasn't a, an infant coming out of the birthing canal. I was actually an adult coming out with very painful results. Like my head was popping out of my rear.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I see the light.
0: You know, my story is that of an arrogant, recovering arrogant prick. That's what it is.
1: <laughs> you
0: yeah, know, I was reading Chuck C's book. I started a book club with some friends. We started off with Chuck C's book, A New Pair of Glasses. If you haven't, they have them. If you haven't, don't have a copy. I'm going to tout what they have at the table there. Grab a copy. It's a wonderful treatise on step three, I thought. And in that he talked about, in the initial pages, he talks about describing the problem. And he talks about this kid, this man who was afraid of dogs. And he said, dogs are my problem. And then he figured, why are dogs my problem? He says, when he was a youngster, a dog bit him. And then he realized why the dog bit him. He says, because he was chasing a young girl. So he came to realize dogs have never been his problems. Women have been his problems. (laughs) Alcoholism has really never been my problem. My problem has been obsession with behavior. And I can obsess over behavior like you wouldn't believe. At least I used to. I wanted to drive four cars on the freeway at the same time. (laughs) Because the idiot in front of me is not doing 200 miles an hour. The moron behind me wants to ride in my backseat. And the... Fool on the blind spot won't let me cut the guy in front of him, right? Four cars at the same time. I'm the kind of fool who will go out on a date with an absolutely beautiful woman. She could be drop-dead gorgeous, but God forgive her if she has a piece of lettuce stuck in a tooth.
1: Because
0: the woman disappears and a head of lettuce appears. And I want to take a toothpick and scrape it off. That's my problem, not alcoholism. But I complicated it because the victim in me said, if she only would get sober everything would be okay and I didn't know the meaning of the word sobriety all I wanted her to drink was two glasses of white wine specifically Chardonnay because I didn't like the taste of Chablis and I was cheap enough I didn't want to buy a bottle of Chablis that's the insanity that I lived and he's right I think we become damaged not because of the alcoholism I grew up in a crazy family too I didn't know that because the image was intact that's the other disease I have image management I gotta look good I don't know why, but I've got to look good, because I have to impress you. I don't know you, but I have to impress you. And I grew up in a family where the mantra was, what will they say? I had no idea who these they were. And they had no lives of their own, because they were fixated on mine.
1: And they were judging me,
0: not from my behavior only, but judging me from the company I kept. So I had to make sure who I hung out with, because they were watching And I had to impress them because, God Almighty, then came out this knight in shining armor, the people-pleaser, the caretaker, and all the qualities that made me right for a good alcoholic to grab onto. My story is that, my name is, by the way, Indian, not the feathered kind, but the turban kind. I wore neither. And yes, I do own a shell gas station, a quickie mart, I write software.
1: (laughs) I'm a doctor, I'm an
0: engineer, and I have an alcohol service in Bombay, India. (laughs) I have none of that. only thing about me is that I wear the spikes on my golf shoes on the inside so I can feel it. <laughs> and I'm kidding. <laughs> I got all the stereotypes covered, right? And I grew up in a, in, a, in a family where my father was gone most of the time. He traveled for business. I think he wanted to escape. And. <laughs> my poor mom had to raise uh, four kids in a joint family with, with a grandmother who had hallucinations at times in the middle of the night screaming, scared the HGVs out of us. And then we would have this lady come in trying to um, uh, exorcise the demons that existed in the home and she would have all these tr- uh, trances and stuff and we asked not to see if hear the voices. It was very scary. An uncle who should have been an alcoholic, he should have had a few drinks. but He was a dry drunk, I thought. And, you know, we, became, we learned to become extremely wary because no one wanted to upset the apple carts and everything. So I think that wariness came in handy in terms of when it finally happened to be the alcoholic. I became like that Marty Feldman guy. I had big eyes that rotated all over. I could tell what was going on in the back of me rather than, you know, having to turn my head around. So I got the right things going on at school. I was always a class monitor. I could take names. You were talking, could tell. Very observant. I was was a good boy because I had to impress you because you were watching me this is the insanity I grew up with he talked about uh, 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 all the craziness that happened at sisters who God bless them I mean they are who they are they're wonderful people today it really doesn't matter where I was born what I was born because they say once you become a major from a minor you're responsible for what you do and what turns out what happened then is then what I'm doing now is what I'm responsible for so it's irrelevant what kind of family I grew up in what they did and what conditions I had once I became aware of the defects of character in step four then it's my responsibility and that was, a, that was a, the freeing moment anyway I, just to tell you how it was what happened where I'm at today I grew up in this family I finished up with school I went, a very secular upbringing. I was born Hindu, but went to Catholic school, grew up around Muslims and Protestants and Jews. In fact, when we went to temple, the priest would end up the prayers with the Lord's Prayer. There was a picture of Christ right next to the picture of Krishna and all that good stuff. So there was no hang-up on religion, at least, but there was a lot of superstition. So I really did not have a God of my understanding, the God that was... Of my understanding Was a God that was dictated to me By my culture By my school By my this By my that You know If you sin The priest would say In Catholic school God puts a black dot On your soul I had no idea Where the soul was But it was covered With black dots And that scared me <laughs> Anyway I finished up with school I climb up the proverbial mountain In my Best Sunday loincloth A little stud on it empty. <laughs> so I look at me. Bad vision Visual, I mean. (laughs) I walk up to this guru. I said, oh, great one, I seek serenity. He said, go to Detroit, Michigan and join (laughs) Al-Anon. He did not say that to marry an alcoholic in the process. That he kept to. No, there was no guru or anything. I left India in 1974, warned by well-meaning friends and family. They said, do not get involved with American women, except in the (laughs) Chicago area. I said, why? And they said, because they drink and smoke in the open like men do translation discreet Indian women do it behind closed
1: doors (laughs) what will they
0: say they're caught so I came out and I did not care if the American women smoked but I loved the fact that she drank because they say candy's dandy liquors quicker it made my progress in an evening extremely cost effective and expedient
1: (laughs) sick man very sick man (laughs) Except
0: I didn't know I was sick. Image was intact. They, I was like that Alan Alda character in *MASH*. My kind of woman, drunk. <laughs> Little did I know, God Almighty, uh, God. I want you to tell you, any newcomers in Alanon? This is your first 30 days or whatever. Anyone living with active alcoholism? Oh, really? You have active alcoholics in your family? Mine was rather sedentary. She wasn't very active. <laughs> <laughs> sat on a couch. Occasional activity was throwing stuff at me. <laughs> the only funny part about activity was I saw actually on a 10-speed bicycle. We lived in Schomburg <coughs> for, for a few years. And I actually saw her on a 10-speed bicycle, and the snow was about 8 or 10 inches high. And she had a brown bag with it. It's like a, watching this animal coming with its prey, so proud. On this ten- and I'm watching the window, and I'm saying, oh, my God. This is determination. Markings of success if applied in some other enterprise of life, beyond alcohol. So anyway, I'm looking for uh, the person in my life who will get me into Al-Anon. So I'm I'm hanging out at this. uh, I finish up with school, and I'm hanging out at a place called Yesterday's in Southfield, Michigan, to meet my soulmate du jour. (laughs) And I would lure the, the soulmates into going with me to Detroit, Michigan uh, Downtown Detroit, which is rather a scary place to be And it is a place of adventure But I would take them to this little enclave called Greektown Greektown is very safe uh, You could not get mugged in Greektown because it was policed by the Greek mafia but, So if you didn't owe any money to anyone, you were okay But this is going back into the 70s. I like Greek town because you could go to a Greek restaurant and get a four-course meal for about 25 bucks. And it included this elixir called Roditus Wine. And Roditas Wine had the magical quality of transforming an absolute stranger into the most intimate of friends over the course of a meal. And you know, I walked up to my wife and I married her. By the way, she's now my former spouse. I was told not to refer to her as my ex wife, but to call her my former spouse. So, for the sake of abbreviation, I will call her FS.
1: <laughs> <laughs> my
0: former spouse. <laughs> and so I'm staying, I'm, I'm, I told my wife then, I said, you know, all of these relationships I had. We are non-scary a beam and I had alcoholic, no, don't waste your time, alcoholic, no, 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 no. I said all these relations and I use the word relationship rather loosely here because week, two weeks, maybe a couple nights. I don't know. You know, someone was leaving either. I was leaving or they were leaving because there's no commitment going on. And I said, none of them were alcoholic. When I met you, my beam took off alcoholic. Yes, boom, and your beam took off. She said, You're an idiot. If you'd married one of them, you would have driven them to drink too, like you did me. <laughs> so, you know, here I am uh, getting involved with someone, and I have no clue what the hell is going to happen. I ended up meeting her because of image management. <laughs> and this is the story of a cad. A recovering cad. I'm no longer a cad. So if you're starting to judge me, judge me from the fact that this is in the past, not the present. (laughs) I'm more, how should I say, spiritually aware today. Thank God. But then I was going out with this woman and my boss at Xerox, I was working with Xerox at the time, invited me to his home for a party and the woman I was seeing did not fit the image I wanted to project at this party. So I was looking for the right image. And I ended up going to this place called Traffic Jam, which is a student hangout at Wayne State. I was part-time lecturer there. And I'm sitting there, and the person who was going to be the transforming catalyst, if you will, in my life shows up. And she, my beam took off, said, here's the person in my life. I'm going to make her excuses, tell her lies, mend a damaged relationships, blah, blah, blah. And she said, here's the idiot who's going to do it all for me. I said, will you go out with me to this party? And she said, yes. And I said, Wow. And then she blew up my ego by saying, you know, you're the first patron in this place that I'm going to go out with. She was working her way through nursing school as a waitress at this restaurant. So I asked her out for a a date to this party. But before that, we went out to dinner. Now, normally, when I went out to dinner with women, I listened with an open mind. In one ear out the other. (laughs) Because I'm strategizing. (laughs) this case, it was something scary. My God has a bloody sense of humor it's because I'm sitting and actually indulging in intellectual intercourse with this woman. She's talking to him, listening. I'm, I'm, I'm understanding what she's saying and I'm having a conversation. That was I was scary. I should have left her at the restaurant and driven away. But no, we go up to this party and warning number two, another joke from God shows up and says, this guy named uh, jo- uh, George. And he said, how long have you and Susan been going out? You look so comfortable together. She's five or six years. I said, George, I met this woman last week. This is my first date with her. He says, oh, you look so comfortable. And I'm training, man. Comfortable. This must be a past life thing. Excuse me. This is the only time I proselytize from the stage. If you're that comfortable on your first date with someone, one of you ought to leave. (laughs) See, the rocks in the head are fitting the holes in yours. (laughs) So I continue to start seeing this woman and we're having a relationship now. And about three or four months later, in our relationship, at about 10 o'clock at night, there's a knock on the door. And as I open the door, out stands this woman with a lump on her head. And I said, what happened? She said, my mother struck me in an alcoholic rage. Now, the father in me, the knight in shining armor, personalities that Sybil and Roseanne would have quibbled over, showed up. And said, you will not move in with that woman. You will move in with me. Now, a Hindu from Bombay, India, does not ask a Polish Catholic girl to move in with her. But that was not the scary part The scary part was watching her God-fearing, very Catholic, Polish mother who disavowed sinful relationships in terms of actually having people live together, helping her daughter move in with me. (laughs) That was a significant clue that something was wrong, but, you know, I don't know. And we moved in. We had a great time initially. But all of a sudden, things things started to happen. We were getting into fights. There were strange sounds coming out of the bedroom, and I wasn't even there. Doors shutting, cars, tires squealing. And you would have thought perhaps I was in denial. Denial is progress for me at the time. I was clueless. I think I was mildly sociopathic. Because you were in my life only if you served a purpose. I wasn't cognitively aware of that. But I had no connection with this woman at a feelings level. She was in my life and that's all there was. I didn't know the meaning of the word feelings. When I went into my men's stag group and I heard men talk about feelings, it scared them dickens out of me. In fact, I'm driving home. This is how disconnected I am from my feelings. I'm driving home after the meeting. I'm sipping on a can of soda and I'm saying, oh my God, I feel a welling in my chest. I'm experiencing a feeling. But I'm not happy happy. And I'm not sad, sad. What is this feeling? And all of a sudden, carbon dioxide escapes me and the the feeling is gone. (laughs) That's how disconnected I am from me. How am I going to connect with you? I have no dimensions to my personality. I have no depth to my being. I'm strictly on the external. Why? Because I've been raised from childhood to focus on the external. What will they say? How do you look? How do you speak? How do you walk? How do you talk? None of this stuff about getting inside and focusing on what the hell is going on in the inside so I can connect at some intimate, vulnerable level with someone else. That wasn't happening for me. So my, even now, my God has a sense of humor when I am in pain about something or I'm delighted about. And I do my six and seven. I use six and seven for everything, not just defects of character, but for any pain. And I literally cup my hand and say, God, I'm giving this to you. And about two minutes later, I feel a little, bundy expression, burp. And I say, thank you, God. We connect. We know what the hell is going on. So this is, this is the kind of thing that I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, getting involved with this woman. There's a lot of pain in the house. So we decided to do the next indicated thing. We got married. How many of you have done that, right? Move into this wonderful town called Warren, Michigan, to this little condo. And this condo had a little half-bathroom that became my, uh, what you call, place where it finally came from a place of cluelessness to a place of denial to a place of awareness to a place of, oh, my God. This little bathroom happened to be her bar. I didn't know it. I'd walk into the little half-bathroom, bath- open up the cabinet, six or seven empty cans of beer with out, And I was upset that they were not in a trash can. I walk up to my wife and say, what were those empty cans doing in there? All over the cabinet. She said, oh, Aunt Bunny came in over and had a few beers. I never questioned Aunt Bunny why she took a six-pack into the bathroom. Was she eliminating the middleman? I don't know. Strange things that told me something was wrong. A bottle of wine sitting in the cabinet. a cabinet. friend of mine comes over and said, Tom, would you like a glass of wine? He said, yes. I reach into the cabinet, I take out the bottle of wine. It's got the cork, it's got the silver wrap, it's got the red thing around it, but the bloody thing is empty. I don't know if they have special shops for alcoholics where they sell syringes that are long to suck the booze out of a bottle without doing anything to it. Still not an idea what the hell is going on. Again, image management came to the fore. My family had moved into the area. I wanted to introduce the white sheep of the family to them. They got in my car driving over to Downriver michigan that detroit to to introduce my wife to them and and she had been drinking i guess i smelled the naka on her breath i didn't know what was going on we got into a fight and i said i can't take you in this condition i'm going to take you back home and i dropped her off at the house and she walked into her little bar and i for some reason followed and was about to walk by the thing and i saw trying to jam shut the door to the cabinet what i saw inside was a 55 gallon drum of gallo wine it was a half a gallon jug I don't know how I'd assume this enormous proportion in my head and I just stood there very quietly and a voice in my head said your wife's an alcoholic your wife's an alcoholic your wife's an alcoholic your wife's an alcoholic and if God had materialized in some anthropomorphic form and said you know what Ajit we don't need one of you you're going to think her thoughts feel her feelings experience her emotions you're going to have conversations with her you're going to talk to her she's going to talk back to you but she's not going to be there it's all going to happen here I would have said God you're crazy not for me But that's exactly what happened for the next three and a half years. She was happy. I was elated. She was angry. I was confused. I learned how to walk on eggshells. I knew I was, to use a psychobabble term, I was so enmeshed with her. When she walked by me, I knew when she was going to drink because she was a periodic drunk. I'd call her from the office, say good morning to her, and the way she responded, I knew what was going to happen that day. And I called her sick. Not her. It was me. I didn't know that. Because I... The next thought that came into my head is, I'll take care of it. Because you see, I've been watching TV, and I've seen a commercial called Schickshedl Commercial. You remember those? For those of you who don't remember, this is how the commercial went. The wife walks up to her husband, she said, darling, you have a drinking problem. He says, sweetheart, you're so right. (laughs) I think an alcoholic wrote that copy on that ad. And they go off to get treated. So now I'm new to this country, I believe truth in advertising. And I walk up to the woman, my wife, and I said, sweetheart, you have a drinking problem. She said, you're an idiot. I don't. I don't have plan B. My plan B is to say, if I catch her in the act, then she'll know, I'll know she has a drinking problem, and she'll stop. So if you don't have much of a life and a lot of time in your hands, you might want to do some of these things for the newcomers. We're living with active alcoholics. I sat on the couch pretending to watch the television, which was off. It was a blank television thing. (laughs) Because if it's on, I can't catch a reflection of what's going on. I'm doing the crossword puzzle, pretending to do the crossword puzzle. And I'm keeping an eye on the television set because it's telling me what's going on in the kitchen behind me. And I see her pour her booze, and I make this Archimedean explanation like I've discovered a new law in physics. Aha! (laughs) And then I see her go up to the bedroom, and I move up and move all the bottles around, thinking that when come feed time at 2 o'clock in the morning... She'll come down and she'll look around, she'll see the bottles moved, and she'll know that I know, and then she'll stop drinking. I didn't know that alcoholics had their stash in 19,000 places. In fact, I was more creative in the places I thought she might have hidden. I was almost arrested for molesting my vacuum cleaner. I was pawing Hoover to see if she'd hidden the bottle in the bag. That's sick, isn't it? Strange things, I tell you. And I'm not going to go into the the craziness that happened, going through garbage cans looking for booze. Wife's passed out on the floor. Stuff is coming out of her mouth. A six-month-old will say that woman is drunk. Not this idiot. He has to go and critique her choice of alcohol. Kmart champagne, how gauche.
1: (laughs) Screw top
0: wine? She didn't let it breathe. What kind of red wine is she drinking? (laughs) I told my sponsor, I said, oh my God, I was a garbologist. He said, that's nothing. Because, see, sponsors have to go to school called one-upmanship school. If you're an idiot, let me show you I was a bigger idiot than you. And that's why I'm sponsoring you. I used to work in the army, he said, and I used to be a mechanic on Jeeps. I had a flashlight in my mouth in the dark, and I used to reuse both my hands. And that trait, he said, came in handy because I could go. And he said this rather proudly, two garbage cans at the same time in the middle of the night. I didn't have the heart to tell him, be good to yourself, go to Granger Industrial Supply and buy a miner's helmet. So if you're new and you're going through garbage cans, be good to yourself. Get a helmet with a flashlight. (laughs) Both your hands are free. I did the sniff and kiss test. Have you ever done that? You walk, honey. How are you? (sniffs) (laughs) Sucked the daylight out, and you're walking slap happy because now you don't need a drink because all that vodka's gone into your system. (laughs) Nothing was working. I decided to leave. She said, if you leave, I will commit suicide. Now, I'm not going to say suicide is something that you can take cavalierly, but I didn't care. I was angry. I said, that I want to watch so you don't botch it up. (laughs) Wrong move. She goes to the kitchen. I follow. Her intentions changed much to my, not to my knowledge. She went from suicide to deciding on homicide. (laughs) and our distance is about 20 odd feet and I'm standing here and she's in the kitchen and all of a sudden I see knives and plates and dishes and everything flying at me with absolute accuracy I couldn't believe and they're coming right at me and this image conscious idiot is dodging them instead of running out of the house that if I run out of the house the neighbors will find out that I have a drunk at home which brings me to the point in my talk why do alcoholics get anonymous after they get sober
1: <laughs>
0: if you became anonymous while you were drinking no problem. <laughs> but God, you've got to be an ass while you're drinking, and then you get anonymous after you stop drinking. <laughs> Insane. Absolute insanity. So I decided, geez, she's not going to commit suicide. She's trying to kill me. I'll leave. That didn't work. Then we tried marriage therapy. Oh my God. That didn't work. Second guy we saw, first guy didn't know what the hell was going Second guy, What's the problem? I said, she drinks too much. He said, so what's the problem? And I tell you the problem with my accent. So I spoke louder and slower. (laughs) Like he's deaf and stupid. And then he says, what's the problem? And I heard the inflection. So what's the problem with that? He was saying. And I looked at his nose. It was so red, it gleamed. In the dark, he could have served as a beacon on a dark ocean. (laughs) And I looked at my wife and said, oh my God, he's one of you. He said, yeah, he understands. I said, of course. That didn't work. Finally... Ann Landis came to my rescue. Yeah. I used to read Ann Landis. You're not qualified for al I have such a well-developed feminine side. I don't need to date. I take myself out to dinner and dance. That is sick. Oh, Lord. What an idiot. You talked about a, a lizard brain. I have a pea brain like in a peacock image 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 all the time trying to impress and trying to cover up those defects of character not acknowledging them if I was angry I was angry for being angry If I felt insecure I denied it if I felt envious I denied it all the crap that was being stored inside in those days dealing with alcoholism because uh, coming to Al-Anon i agreed Ann Landers and said if you're mother or father or whatever of alcoholics go to Al-Anon so I walk into my first Al-Anon meeting I wasn't bothered by her drinking as they say in Al-Anon if you're bothered by someone else who came up with that euphemistic nonsense I was pissed off I was mad, I was angry I was just absolutely besides myself that this woman cannot stop drinking I mean, this, I can stop drinking why can't she? I don't have this desire to wear a bloody lampshade on my head to be the life of the party why does she have to be an ass? So I walk into my first Al-Anon meeting, and it's brightly lit lights, people as beautiful as you, but that was not my perception of it. It was a dark, dingy, dank, dirty room with six women, average age, deceased. That's what I said. (laughs) That's what I said. That's what I saw in that bloody room, and I walked up to the deadest of them all rather angrily. I said, how does this thing work? She was afraid to even get up from a chair and give me a hug or welcome me. She pointed me to a distant table and said, go there. There's a pamphlet called 12 Steps. You pick it up and you read it. So I walk up, and now I'm a pseudo-intellectual moron. I walk up, and I take the 12 steps. I look at them. I said, oh, it's got an escape clause at the top. These steps are taken from AA. We change only one word in the 12th step. We go from alcoholics to others. So I read the first step of my life. I'm powerless over alcohol. My life has become unmanageable. I said, my wife is unmanageable, not my life. Does not apply. Move on. Came to believe a park and greater than myself could restore me to sanity. I said, I'm the sane one. She's the insane one. Sane people don't go about promoting suicide, contemplating homicide. I actually decided on killing my wife at one time. I was reading a magazine called Argosy. It's an English magazine, and Alfred Hitchcock described the perfect murder murder weapon. And I see some of you leaning forward. (laughs) It's an icicle. And you have them in Chicago. You take an icicle, you murder the person. I said, I'm going to kill her. I'm going to go to the basement, dig it up, pour her. This is all happening in 15 nanoseconds from a guy who comes from the land of Gandhi. We're supposed to starve
1: ourselves. (laughs) Starvation
0: was not an option here. And I always felt so guilty for even thinking about that. And the second thought that came, and this is where the sickness really is. I said, oh my God, if I kill her and pour her in the basement, my mother-in-law who lives a mile away will find dust on my wife's car. She'll think something is wrong. She'll call the police. And kiddo, you didn't come all the way from Bombay to befriend some guy named Bubba in a Michigan prison.
1: <laughs>
0: that was not the goal. And I shared the story. My Friday night meeting in Irvine, a woman came up to me. This is how the focus is on the alcoholics. They're sick. They're not sick. They have a disease. The sickness is in here because we have. You know, I see people in Al-Anon try and emulate the AA program. To so many, we take we take birthday cakes. How do you determine your birthday in Al-Anon? I mean, I slip every 10 minutes with the thinking I have. Actually, they say an al slip is five minutes of laughter or 30 seconds of compassion. But- you know, I have not been freed of my obsessive thinking and I'm not totally detached from the people I'm involved with. That's a constant awareness and a constant discipline that I have to monitor. For the alcoholics, in one sense, it's very simple. You count the days that you haven't had drinks for 24 hours. Boom, boom, boom. We don't have that. There's no dim- clear demarcation of before and after. So it's very... Cloudy. So here I am in this thing, and I'm saying, what the hell is going on in here? And we, I'm, I'm trying to kill this woman, and this lady comes up to me, and she says, oh my God, I'm so glad you shared this story. I said, why? She said, my husband was sleeping on the couch, he was passed out, and I was going to take a pillow and snuff him out. And I said, why did you not do it, thinking she'll say that's a heinous thing to do, it goes against principles or anything. Instead, she said, oh, they would have found cotton in his nose, and they would have not <laughs> Self-preservation saved that poor man's life. This woman had no, she was so callous, she didn't care about the fact she was going to kill someone. She just didn't want to go to prison. And I took step three, made a decision to turn my will in my life. I said, wait a minute, why turn, return to God that which he's given to me in the first place? Makes God an Indian giver. See, I can say that. (laughs) Step four, took a fearless and personal moral inventory. And boy, was I proud of myself. No defects of character moved we'll on to step five it goes against the credo of image management a nothing is wrong b if there were i'm not going to tell you about it are you nuts six and seven i'd lost her which today are the underpinnings of my program moved we'll on to step seven it had a word that was alien to my vocabulary it said humbly i was actually so humble i was proud of it so i moved on to step eight
1: <laughs>
0: made a list of persons i had harmed they deserved it nine when is she going to make amends to me ten I'm training. my head's hurting because the halo is fitting too tight. <laughs> Eleven was more a pleading with God to get her in some kind of trouble so she was sober. Huh? And then I was spiritually awakened in three and a half minutes and I looked at this woman and I said, now what? She said, keep coming back. I said, why? She said, because you're sick. And she said it with emphasis. She must have been a psychic. <laughs> and I did. I returned. I'd meant to that meeting every six weeks and go back. <laughs> Now, this is the thing. I'm embarking on a program that's going to get to the core of my psyche. It's going to alter that screw just enough. It's going to change my perception. And they say a miracle is a changed perception. So I'm going to be faced with all these miracles that are going to come my way. I'm going to alter my attitude. I'm going to shift my paradigm into not being a victim, but actually a manifestor of my own reality in the way I think and respond to situations. And I'm going to learn all this stuff by going to class once every six weeks. Ain't going to happen. And then the people in that meeting confounded me with this disease concept. See, the fixation was all the time on the alcoholic thing. It's a disease. I said, what kind of a disease? She said, if she had cancer or diabetes, that's the kind of disease. So, uh, you know, you don't do this to a guy like me. Uh, Peggy talked about the brain fragmenting into different fractions. I have the same thing. There's a conversation going on. I'm the silent observer sitting there and listening to this. And once I said, she's got cancer, why is she seeking chemotherapy? She's got diabetes, why not insulin therapy? It's only when I was transferred to Chicago. I was going to Schaumburg, Illinois. I, lived. I went to my meetings in Schaumburg, Illinois. One of to meetings once, three times a week. And I was talking about this disease thing. And they looked at me and they said, why don't you go to the text Now, I'm not suggesting you do this in your meetings here, but in that Al-Anon meeting, they had the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in the Al-Anon meeting. It's not not Al-Anon approved literature, but I was so grateful they had that book in that room. I picked up the book and I read it for the first time I come to the awareness that this disease has nothing to do with physiological definitions of disease. It transcends physiological, psychological All kinds. I mean Carl Jung and Silkworth were incapable of defining what this bloody thing was who's this puny mind going to sit there and say ah it's a disease and I recognized that the dog was not my problem it was chasing the girl that was my problem alcoholism was not my disease my my problem was my obsession of behavior my disease is my dis-ease the insides not matching the outsides the outside is something different from the inside. I have no clue what the inside is. This is what this program for me became. So I started to do a lot of literature study, a lot of reading and this and that. So I wasn't working the staff, so I was just learning a lot about the stuff. And then I was articulating it because I have the gift of the language in some ways. And people will come and say, oh my God, what a great program you're working I'm we were transferred to California, and I'm getting into service. I'm the treasurer of the meeting. I'm a secretary of a meeting. I'm an intergroup rep. I'm a group rep. I'm, I'm going on panels. I'm speaking at meetings, being asked to speak at conferences, and I think I know what the hell I'm talking about. I feel like that Seinfeld character. He said when he was 20, he thought he was hot shit. He got to be 30, he realized what an idiot he was at 20. When he became 40, he realized what a moron he was at 30. So when I get to be 60, I'll realize what a moron I'm at 55. Yes, I'll be 55 this May. Nice compliments I got from people who said, You look only 52.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so anyway, then came the... Uh, uh, then uh, Sue in 1983 found sobriety for herself. Why did she found sobriety? Because I stopped doing the things for her that I was doing. And I'm not suggesting that I was responsible for her sobriety, but I was tired. I was going to movies alone. I was going to shows alone. In the past, when she would pass out and relieve herself on the floor I would pick her up and prop her up so she wouldn't have to confront that in the morning and Alanon said you know what you don't have to do the things for her they taught me detachment is being responsible to but not being responsible for detachment is really giving them the courtesy and the dignity of facing up to their own consequences I didn't know any of that I had to intellectually force myself to that it did not come from here I had to actually discipline myself to do it so when she passed out and she relieved herself I would cover her up with a blanket I had the Sunday newspaper I had to relieve some of my anxiety so I give her a quick whack on the butt with her shoe. no harm just a light butt and things started to change except I didn't know that but in 1990 about two years into her sobriety she came to the awareness that she had been molested as a child and in the meanwhile we had given birth to two uh, twins and, and another kid after that all immaculately conceived because every time it happens how'd that happen? I finally discovered <laughs> and after Nathan, just before Nathan arrived my fourth one Sue came to the awareness of things that happened to her ch- in her childhood and she informed me that it would change our marriage the intimacy issue would suddenly dissipate and disappear I didn't know that and things were kind of held in the handbasket. Every kind of intimacy we had, which is intellectual, spiritual, whatever, just kind of started to go out the window. And the image was intact. We were actually counseling other couples on how to maintain their marriages while ours was dying. For seven years before my marriage ended, was dying. Two years it was dead. We didn't know it. I was sleeping in separate bedrooms. We were sleeping in separate bedrooms, raising four kids in this angry atmosphere, both of us in programs, so to speak but we were not bringing it home. We were talking about the program in our meetings, doing it with our sponsors and sponsors, being of service outside, but we were not bringing the bloody thing home because of the sickness that took hold. And in 1996, she asked me to leave. And on July 4th, 1996, I walked out very angry. And this program saved us because I was sitting in my attorney's office, paying him 250 bucks an hour, telling him how to screw the dickens out of my wife. Get my, get my home back to me, get my children back to me, prove to the world that she's psychotic, neurotic, and everything else. I don't care. And my sponsor's voice showed up. Because, see, my sponsor taught me. He says, Step one is defining the problem. Get to the problem. Because the problem is not the leaves, it's at the roots. Alcoholism, Ajith, is not your problem. Your problem is obsession with behavior. What is really the problem here? My voice, the voice said. I could hear Dean's voice on my shoulder. I said, I don't want to lose my kids. I didn't care about the house or the material. None of that mattered. He says, have you called her and asked her? I said, no. He says, why don't you do that? So I walked out the room. I called my spouse and I said, I don't want to take you to court on one condition. She said, what? I said, I don't want to lose my kids. She said, you're an idiot. We have four kids. I don't want them to myself. (laughs) Operation successful patient died peacefully. We didn't go to court. No fights. My divorce cost me 700 bucks because the attorney charged that much. I went to see a second attorney, and she said, I will not represent you if you're going to take your wife to court. It's silly. Write up an agreement to agree to disagree and sign it off and go from there. My spouse decided that she only wanted three years of alimony. We stretched it out to four. We decided to co-parent our children not fight custody. I moved out of the house. She still lives in the house that we both own. We don't have a marriage. We're not best of friends or any of that stuff but we have a very calm good relationship in that regard and our children have been well served our children did not have to worry about which home to stay, where to go, they have keys to both homes and they could not manipulate us because my daughter would say, mom's letting me do this, I say, oh really, let me find out from mom mom said, never did that, I never said so so, really helped and today it's been a wonderful relationship my my children are 21 year old twins going on 22 and I was sort of annoyed about her grandson, my 20-year-old, my 20, now he's 21, decided that he was going to drink and drive. And he got a DUI. And he came up to me and he says, you know, Dad, I'm very scared. I, I did something stupid. I drank and I drove. And I looked at him. I said, you know, if you're an alcoholic, you know where to go. Your mom's already told you. I'm already going to Al-Anon. So he had to go to those six uh, meetings that the state makes you go to. And I, he said, what do I do? I said, stand up there and introduce yourself and say, you're a member of DAM." He says, what's that? I said, drunks against mad mothers. <laughs> he didn't like that to me. He didn't see the humor. And that's the gift of this program. I didn't have to get mad at him. I took him to court. I told him, this is the only time I'm going to give you a ride. Second time you get into trouble like that, you're on your own. A kid got himself, he had to give up his car. And he got himself one of those little uh, skateboard with a scooter motor on it. <laughs> and he's going to work and he's going to school. And that's the neat gift of this program, you know. My, I have a wonderful relationship with my daughter, her twin. Taking them, when they were nine years old, to nine stores for school shopping. Because my wife said, hey, I've been doing this all this time, now it's your turn. Four kids in total going shopping, nine stores. I had a blast. I didn't know that. Made turkey dinner the first year after that. Anyway, I went to see a divorce therapist only in Southern California we have that quality (laughs) and she told me don't get involved with any women she didn't specify the cultural heritage or the ethnicity women period I said I'm moving to the island of Lesbos so I can be around women but not be involved with them and she laughed I said don't you understand just don't get involved but the rational rationalization that's been my bane came into my head and said you know what you've transitioned kid seven years dying two years the marriage is dead you're free, because there was a woman in my al meeting to whom I was attracted, and apparently she was attracted to me as well. In August, I got into a very torrid relationship with this woman that was absolutely fantastic. They say God works in mysterious ways. Everything that I had been lacking in my marriage was given to me multifold in this relationship. I was like a starved animal that was being given fantastic grain, and I loved it. But as had been predicted by the therapist, that relationship ended a year later and I crashed like you would not believe. It was worse than my divorce. And I walked up to my sponsor and said, I'm a coward, I can't kill myself, I'm in so much pain, do you have a gun? Instead, he said, when was the last time you were alone? I said, I can't recall. I said, what do I do? First time I asked my sponsor for help, I said, help me. He says, go lock yourself up for a couple of days and work on your fourth. I said, how do I work on my fourth? I don't like the blueprint of progress. I've done that. I thought it was too self-indulgent, the blueprint for progress, looking at yourself too much. He said, use the courage to change book. There are four questions in there. One is, the first question is, who am I? No clue. No clue at all. Today, if you ask me, who am I? I'll tell you. I like what Rumi, the Sufi poet, has to say. I'm a breath-breathing human being. That's who I am. I don't know what the hell I am. You know, you say, I'm Indian, American, I'm a citizen of the United States. We're talking about awareness with Christiane this morning, this book. Labels, labels, labels all over the place. I actually went to Laguna Beach not too long ago, and there's a little pit there that apparently was a fire pit, but flies in it, flies in it. And I'm sitting there, and I picture a fire coming up, and I'm actually walking into the fire and cremating myself, observing myself burning I said, "Okay, there goes the ego, there goes the thoughts there goes the ideologies, there go the dogmas there go the beliefs, the labels the father, the son, the husband or whatever, it's all disappearing what's left? I have no idea it's, it's whatever it is, it's consciousness or whatever you call it and I said, oh my god, I walked around thinking I'm bigger than my sponsor used to say, I said, how do you know when I've arrived in Al-Anon, he says, when you think you're half as good as you thought you were and you're twice as good as your wife thinks you are. That's when you were right. I said, Oh my God, I'm just disappearing in front of me. And this is what this program is all about. It's just a shift in consciousness. And I didn't know that. I heard this guy say, He says, All the steps are doing, as that book says, uncovering, discovering, discarding, all the crap that I've accumulated in thinking that I know about stuff. The longer I stay in this program, the more I realize I know nothing i know absolutely nothing and that's why the book says to the newcomer the possibilities are many and to the old timer like myself who gets complacent in meetings thinking i know it or oh, i've heard this bullshit before you know i've heard this crap of nonsense i haven't heard it before because i'm hearing the words i'm not connecting with the feelings and what this program is telling me connect at a level that's beneath all that because the consciousness prevails all over the place I didn't know a God. I stumbled on step three, man. Because when I finished that step four, the second question of what are my values, I had no values. I went to school. I knew values of fidelity, honesty, loyalty, all that sort of good stuff. I hadn't practiced any of those to the best of my abilities. And then it says, what traits of character do you wish to keep about you? And the last one said, what traits of character do you wish to get rid of? Went through this thing. It was a cathartic experience of which I don't... Wish anyone to go through, but it was fantastic. It was very painful. I did my fifth with my sponsor. And I felt my feet hit the ground. For the first time, Darth Vader showed up in my room and said, Welcome to the dark side. Every trait of character that was based in me that I had denied, shame, fear, anger, resentment, uh, vengefulness, insecurity, low self-esteem, whatever I had denied came to the surface. And step four told me that it's all a shadow side obsession is simply a shadow sight to be able to focus if I can obsess I have the capacity to focus if I'm caretaking I have the capacity to be caring all the traits of defects I like Kabi Selby from LA he hasn't spoken in a long time he said something beautiful he said you can't go to Vegas and gamble with coins that have heads only it also has a tail side. So every time I see a defect of character, I have to see what's the corollary to that. What's, what's the shadow side and what's the bright side? Because all this program is talking about is getting rid of the junk. It's really not getting rid of it. Our defects of character are never removed they're just because when I think when I focus on the positive that's what starts to manifest in my life if I keep calling myself names and focus on the defects of character all the time that's what's going to be happening in my life step three and I'm almost running out of time I'll just wrap it up in a few minutes step three was the door opener there for me see I had a God of no understanding and I tried to understand God I tried to comprehend this God and then we were talking about this morning and uh, with you this morning and it it's said, uh, why are we here? She was wondering, why cockroaches? Why God made cockroaches? And, and I was sitting and having a glass of milk, staring at a blank television set, which is my wont to do. And I said, why did God make the planet Uranus? It's a very harsh planet. Acids and the atmosphere is not livable. Nothing can sustain on that, on that planet. I said, then why did God make fleas? What purpose do they serve? And I went on and on why did God make this? And a voice inside said, Why did God make you? And it hit me right then. And 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 the there's a Sanskrit saying, I am the vehicle, you're the driver. And this program talks about move out of the way and allow God's will to express itself as it's supposed to express itself. Don't block it with your ego. And the ego is there just to give me the f- sense that I'm experiencing it when it's actually if I step aside and surrender this. So then I got stuck on step three. And recently I met this uh, 18 months ago. I met the love of my life, this lady. And, and we got into a relationship. She's in program as well. Went off to Greece and got engaged. We come back and certain things about me she discovered that were not Badly intentioned from my standpoint, but the perception of what happened was caused her to feel very pained and she decided to end it. And she called and said to me that I don't have God at the center of my life and I haven't third-stepped and my ego got all pricked up. So what do you mean? I've been in program 26 years and I've surrendered, blah, blah, blah. I mean, we're revisiting our relationship and get going. But part of me says that when someone says something to me, what's being triggered inside of me? And fortunately for me, the ego has diminished enough to take into account what the person is saying. So I start to think about step three. Have I really surrendered? And the thing that hit me was, I don't know what this God thing is, because it's so vast and beyond my comprehension. So to understand God was almost blasphemous for me. So I said, I'm not going to try and understand this God. But the voice said, wait a minute, you've got to come up with something that's palpable to you. What is that? And I heard someone in the meeting once say, God is love. And I said, then this love has to be totally unconditional and totally accepting. This is the kind of God that has to love Hitler and Gandhi in the same way. And that sounds awful to some people. But for me, I had to take it to those extremes for my God to be acceptable to me at a palpable level. He has to be totally unconditional. Then I heard those guys who do the big book comes alive. And they said, turning my will means turning my thinking and my life means turning my actions. So I said, okay, if God is pure love, then if my thoughts to turn my thoughts over to this will uh, To this uh, to this God have to be thoughts of loving and my thoughts have to be loving and then if I speak say anything or my actions they have to be loving then I know I'm in concert with this will of God and the voice said you got it for me it makes sense which means that I have to be tremendously disciplined to keep focused on my thoughts because, see, I am unconscious most of the time because I allow my thoughts to dictate my attitudes instead of saying, I'm not powerless over people, places, and institutions. I can turn that around and say, people, places, and institutions are powerless over me unless I give them the power to dictate my attitudes. So I can be disciplined enough to focus and say, what am I thinking today? Am I, is my thought thinking? I like the word acronym THINK in our program. Is it thoughtful? Is it honest? Is it intelligent? Is it necessary? is it kind and if it's not kind if it's not loving and in, 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 this, in, in the Gandhian principles in Sanskrit there's a word called ahimsa, which means non-violent non-violence non-violence not just from the physical standpoint he talks about being non-violent in thought in word, in deed, it yourself as to as anyone. So when I have a thought that's self recriminating, it's condemning, I'm not indulging in loving thought, I'm not living the will of God for me. Because God is if God is all love, then this God is all acceptance, if God is all acceptance, then I must be non judgmental. If a defect of character shows up I must accept it as it is, without judgment, without condemnation, and use the Zen principle that says it is thus. Now that I know it is thus, what do I do about it? Which brought me to step two, what are my options? Looking at the solution. Step six says, I don't have to do it myself. I just have to acknowledge it. And if it doesn't have any meaning for any more, I don't have a payoff in it. Then I ask God to remove it. Because the power that is there, it's like, I don't have to understand electricity, as they say. But I know it works when I switch on that light. So when I turn to this God and say, I can't, you can please do, God says, Welcome. Let me do it. I'll take care of it. I have the power. Step eight was wonderful. Step eight told me that there are two kinds of guilt neurotic guilt and real guilt. Neurotic guilt, I can be sorry for being sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 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 <laughs> and real guilt says if I'm sorry, I need to make amends. Amends is not apology. Apology is not amends. I have to make restitution. And restitution could be physical restitution or a change in behavior, a change in attitude, a change in how I I present myself in my thinking and my actions. And that's why these steps have been so healing for me. And I know that I can come into meetings. I've heard people say, oh, I get this program by osmosis. I can't. I can stand in a garage for 20 years next to a car. I am not going to become a car. Unless you take a transmission and shove it up my rear and put a radiator down my nose, maybe I'll come. And I'm going to end on this note. I heard this thing about doing the footwork. This guy said, you walk into this fantastic banquet. I mean, it's the best of foods, best of desserts are being served people are having a grand old time people are eating, munching, talking, laughing you sit at your table, there's a plate in front of you it's empty, waiters and waitresses are bustling by but no one's waiting at your table now you're starting to get ticked off and you're really upset that no one's waiting at your table and then suddenly you realize you're at a buffet (laughs) you have to get off your butt and take action and this is what this program is all about and I'm going to end on this note to tell you where I'm at today, I've had new awarenesses after the breakup and the subsequent reconciliation that's in, in the works. I have come to recognize that I still have traits of character that I had thought had diminished and gone away, but they manifested themselves in different ways. I think Peggy was talking about it. it's like going in a merry-go-round and I realized that the caretaker is still well and alive and that's arrogance. Caretaking is arrogance. It's telling the other person that I am better off taking care of you than you are taking care of yourself. I have boundary issues at times and I didn't recognize that. I hate the word boundaries because for me it implies walls. But it has nothing to do with walls. It's simply saying I have to be responsible for the circle around my feet. I still have problems with detachment from people, places and institutions. I have to recognize the power that I have and where I'm powerless. And sometimes those lines get diminished. I know that I can change the situation by changing the transaction instead of trying to ask the person to change. If my son does not take his car to get fixed, I don't have to take his car to get it fixed. I told him if your car breaks down, you're riding a bike, the car got fixed. In the past, I would take the bloody car to get it fixed. I can change the transaction by altering, by causing the, be- and, and causing the behavior to be altered. So this program is really taking me from a place of coolness to a place of some awareness today. And I still have a long ways to go, and I'm very, very grateful for that. Otherwise, I'd become a saint and be insufferable. <laughs> You've heard saints in meetings, haven't you? And they sit there and s- just talk away from a spiritual standpoint, then you get into the car with them, and they're peeping and honking at the people. And, uh... <laughs> so I know that I have to work this program not just in these meetings, I have to be walking this program outside. My sponsors said these meetings are a huddle, you still got to go out and play the game. So I'm still out there playing the game, and I'm grateful that you're out on the team with me. Thanks for letting me share.